Happy Sabbath to all of you. Thank you, Mr. McCullough, for that very inspiring music telling us about the new heavens and the new earth and that God will wipe away every tear from his eyes and the tabernacle of God will be with men and he will be our God and we will be his children, his sons. So just very, very inspiring, a wonderful vision for the kingdom. Well, greetings to all our friends around the world. It's a beautiful Sabbath day here in Charlotte. We have 212 here today. And greetings to all of you from our brethren in Arizona. My wife and I spent last Sabbath in Tucson and Phoenix, where we had about 30 guests attending the regular Sabbath services. And then, of course, today, uh, Dr. Douglas Winnale will be speaking in Phoenix, and then tomorrow in Prescott. So we'll be praying for those special presentations today and tomorrow, and then followed up next week with Mr. Bardot speaking in Phoenix and in Prescott. Um, Arizona is a beautiful place to be at this time of year, and uh, I did get a little sunshine. Thank you, Mr. League. And uh, really, I would like to be back there at this time, but it's good to be here at the headquarters of God's work. As you heard in the announcement, the Europe is facing a traumatic financial crisis that's been averted for a little later. The U.S. Bipartisan Budget Committee has failed to find ways to cut from the budget. Of course, there is a simple solution that we heard in the sermonette. If our government would tithe, uh, all of those problems will be solved. But they're not going to do that, of course, because of covetousness. But we do have good news of God's work this past week. As you heard, we started on Angel Network which reaches 15 million television households. And we had a good response for the first time. We also have a new station starting in Dallas. And also very good news that a nation network in Australia uh, will start broadcasting our telecast. So that's very good news because we've not had for some time now uh, television outlets in Australia. So that's very good news. Also, Dr. Meredith's semi-annual letter is now producing a strong response. All of the responses are starting to come in, and we're all excited about that. And, of course, we're excited and should be excited about God's coming kingdom. We are pioneers for the kingdom, and we are blazing new trails, as you saw in the feast video titled Philadelphia Pioneers. Some of you know about the lives of great explorers and pioneers over the centuries who have persevered and their discovery and establishing new territory. In the early 19th century, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark explored the northwest part of the what later became uh, the northwest part of the United States. In Corpus Christi, Texas, my wife and I about a year and a half ago uh, visited uh, the aircraft carrier, and surprisingly on that aircraft carrier was an IMAX movie. And we saw this excellent documentary of uh, Lewis and Clark. It was just amazing. President uh, Thomas Jefferson had commissioned them to explore and map the Northwest Territory and to find a way to the Pacific Ocean. It took them two years and four months to do that. They started from St. Louis, Missouri, with 33 persons, including Sacagawea, who was a 15-year-old Shoshone Indian who was there for as an interpreter, to serve as an interpreter. And remarkably, of those 35, only one died along the way. They found their way to the Pacific Ocean on November 15, 1805, 
and then returned September 23rd to the St. Louis area in 1906. Our brethren that attended the Newport, Oregon feast site this year were able to visit some of those historic sites, including Fort Clatsop, K-L-A-T-S-O-P, near Astoria, Oregon, where Lewis and Clark established their fort. And you know about the explorers who've explored the Antarctic, uh, the Arctic, and Africa. And then there was the uh, explorer Ponce de Leon, who was searching for the Fountain of Youth. Uh, He never found it, but all of us have, I hope, one way or another. And you've seen the Indiana Jones movies where he was searching for the Ark of the Covenant. Have you ever dreamed of searching for treasure? I know as a boy I dreamed, I mean more than once, of finding buried treasure in the backyard of my home. And I'd dig it up and there was treasure. I also dreamed of finding bundles of quarters and half dollars at times. We have those dreams of searching for treasures. Treasure hunters, of course, have, are still seeking buried relics under the ocean and and in uh, there in Arizona, it's called uh, Superstition Mountain, where uh, many are still exploring which might be buried treasure or, or gold. But those who are successful applied the seven laws of success, or at least some of them. They persevered, they had vision, they had motivation. And I wonder how many of us are applying the seven laws of success. Are you applying the biblical laws of success? Let's turn to Matthew, the 13th chapter. Matthew 13, we know that our goal and our search for treasure, most importantly, is spiritual. Matthew 13, verses 45 and 46. Here we read about the pearl. Matthew 13, verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price went and sold all that he had and bought it. It was a total commitment for that spiritual, of course, by analogy, spiritual value. Let's turn to, well, I won't turn there, but what is that pearl of great price? In the video, The Philadelphian Pioneer, as we saw in the feast, Dr. Meredith remarked about going back to his home and how his friend saw that there was a change in him. And he found, you found what you were looking for, didn't you? Yes, the pearl of great price. I remember telling my Methodist minister some years ago, and he said, uh, well, why are you leaving the church? And I said, well, when you find the truth, you go after it. And he said, oh, the pearl of great price. I said, yes, exactly. So when we have found the pearl of great price, we realize just how priceless it really is. And what is that pearl of great price? Well, it's the missing dimension of knowledge. It's God's precious truth. As Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, John 8 and verse 30, true. And on the telecast, our announcer, Kevin Lee, says, tomorrow's world keeps you up to date with world trends, Bible prophecy, and the very meaning of life itself. This is knowledge the world does not have. It doesn't have that pearl of great price. And yet we're offering it, we're giving it free, and as God calls people to open their minds to the truth, they have an opportunity to go after the pearl of great price. 
The meaning of life is a mystery to humankind, and yet we have our booklets, Dr. Meredith's booklet, Your Ultimate Destiny, our booklet on the world ahead, what will it be like. We've had telecasts on the real future for true Christians. A new government is coming. But mainstream Christianity is seeking false values. They have a false concept of ultimate destiny. Evolution limits life's meaning to survival of the fittest with no clue to the prophesied future of mankind's potential. But God has revealed that to us in our incredible human potential. We had a sermon on that, your incredible human potential, sermon number 646. And Mr. Herbert Armstrong wrote a book on the subject, The Incredible Human Potential. And by the way, it's available on Amazon.com, anywhere from $1.99 to $15.99 for mint condition for that book. In fact, I was just listening to part of it on an audio tape on the way over here today. Just so inspiring to think about Hebrews, the second chapter, as Mr. Armstrong was explaining it, that God has put all things under man's feet, including the whole universe, yet not yet, yet not now, uh, has he done that. That is our ultimate destiny to inherit the whole, whole universe. Years ago, Mr. Armstrong wrote a motivating booklet titled The Seven Laws of Success. The first law of success is fix the right goal. Did God in heaven give us a goal in life? And most of you know what that goal is, but let's review it. It was quoted or referred to in the sermonette, Matthew 6, Matthew the 6th chapter. Matthew 6 and verse 32 Jesus had been chiding his audience for having little faith, that they were just seeking after food and clothing and all of these things when God provides for the birds of the air. He provides for the plant life. And if he does that, will he not also provide for you, O you of little faith? And then in verse 32, he says, For after all these things the Gentiles seek. What is their goal? What is your goal? For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own thing. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. When I pastored various churches, I would tell the congregation, look, if you know one scripture, you need to know Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. God, of course, has called us to be faithful stewards over physical possessions, but what are your priorities? The title of the sermon today is Matthew 6.33. That's a simple title. This will be part one in a two-part series. I'll cover the first part on seeking God's kingdom in this sermon, and then a follow-up sermon later on on seeking God's righteousness. But what are your goals in life? We understand we have short-term goals, we have long-term goals. I hope you all do, that you've given it thought, you've discussed it with your family. It's a part of your plan, it's a part of your commitment. The history of the world has demonstrated pursuit of worldly goals. And what does the world seek first? Possessions, power, position, 
Have you sought these goals as your lifetime pursuit? Let's turn back to Ecclesiastes. Book of Ecclesiastes, right after Proverbs. Solomon experimented with all those things, the material things of position and possessions and power. Verse 1 of Ecclesiastes 1, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit is a man from all his labor, in which he toils under the sun? One generation passes away, another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. What's the purpose of life? It's just worthless. There's no lasting value. So he experimented with wine, women, song, but he also experimented with construction projects. He had great agricultural projects. He had great choirs and singers, and he had all kinds of possessions. But what was his conclusion? The end, Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13, he said, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. When you fear God, you are accepting reality. And so much of our world is in pleasures of illusions rather than the reality of God's existence. I was surprised to hear, I guess it was on a radio talk show, that uh, 40 million people in the United States have experimented with, I believe it was heroin. No, 40 million. Why do we have all the drug cartels and all the problems? Because there's a demand for it here in the United States and other nations. It's amazing to how many people are addicted to drugs, uh, that is, of course, illicit drugs, and perhaps even prescription drugs. People are addicted to other vices as well, whether it be smoking or illicit sex or something else. And yet God gives us the freedom to break those addictions. Fear God and keep His commandments, because it's a way of life that brings blessings that are blessings today and blessings tomorrow. Verse 14, For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So we see that God's way of life is something that is lasting. It has lasting value. Vanity is anything that is not lasting. As I may explain to you before, even every physical thing in a sense is temporal or temporary. This lectern is temporary. It's not going to be here another thousand years from now. But what is lasting, what is lasting is godly character, and everything that helps to support development of your godly character is not vanity. It has lasting value. And you have to ask yourself, it's one of the key questions of success. You ask the question, Does this action, does this thought contribute to eternal, lasting, godly character? Or is it vanity, selfishness, greed, covetousness, and lust? Is this going to add to my eternal character? So Solomon had to experiment and learn the hard way that no, those things are temporal, they're vanity, they don't last. 
The first law of success is to set the right goal. In this case, in the seven laws of success, that's the first law of success that Mr. Armstrong wrote about years ago. So I'll just take a quick survey here. How many of you, you know one of the seven laws of success, I just told you. So how many of you know another one, at least two of the seven laws of success? Let's see your hands. Oh, excellent. I think that's about 45% of you know two of the laws of success. How many of you know all seven of the seven laws of success? All right. Congratulations to uh, 11.5% of you. We need to know all of the seven laws of success and apply them because they're biblical laws, they're biblical principles. You know, the first one, of course, is fix the right goal. The second is education and preparation. The third one is health. I used to ask the campers at uh, Living Youth Camp and uh, at Orr, Minnesota before that, what's the third law, of ha- third law of success? And they would say health. And I said, what kind of health? Oh, good health is what, you know, we want to have. And Mr. Meredith, in a sermon on healing, the previous sermon, talked about the seven laws of radiant health that he wrote about years ago. We need to apply those laws to be in harmony with God's way of life. And sometimes when you anoint people, uh, we'll say, well, now uh, you're, you're sick from, from whatever you're doing, you're uh, smoking or you're doing something else and you're continuing to smoke. Well, is God going to heal you if you continue to transgress those laws of health? If I'm banging my head against the wall and it's paining me, I'm saying, well, you know, God, please heal me. I want to be anointed for a headache. Well, he's not going to heal you if you keep banging your head against the wall. You have to be in harmony with God's laws of health. And I often include that in a prayer when we anoint someone, that God will help those individuals to find how to be in more full compliance with God's laws of health. The fourth law of success is drive. Thank you. Okay. Our young people know that one. I hope our old people do too. And the fifth law of success is the emergency law. You know that as well. Mr. Armstrong described it as water crashing against a rock. The rock's in the way. The water can't go through the rock, but it finds a way around the rock. And when my wife and I have faced crises, you try to find out what are the alternatives What are the resources to help to face this trial? In one case back in, I guess, 23, no, 33 years ago, she had a tumor, and we were trying to figure out what should we do. I called many different agencies and friends. What are the options? What are the alternatives? What are the resources to help cope with this crisis? Of course, in addition to, first of all, going to God and being anointed for the ailment. So the fifth law of success is resourcefulness. The sixth law of success, as Mr. Armstrong put it, is the stick to or perseverance. You persevere. And, of course, Christ said, he that endures to the end shall be saved. And in the Sermon on Character, he pointed out that uh, perseverance in the King James is sometimes uh, translated character in the New King James. But we have to persevere to the end. And as Mr. Armstrong pointed out, that many that he knew that were great businessmen applied five of the laws of success 
that is setting a goal, but they didn't persevere. And just with a little more effort, a little more stick they could have conquered or overcome or been delivered from their, their trial or from their problem. They didn't stick to it. They didn't persevere. And they gave up. And some of them committed suicide, he pointed out. Then, of course, the seventh law of success, the more important law that is the continuous guidance of Almighty God. In fact, we do have a, a uh, reprint article called Achieving Godly Success. So it's uh, reprint number 140. Uh, you can also order that uh, from our, our headquarters uh, sometime. So I hope you know all of the seven laws of success and that you're applying them. Some people seek success in a, an obsessive way. Uh, this is the December 2011 uh, Psychology Today article, and it has uh, comments on achieving success. And this is a, an article entitled Overachiever by Jill Cootie-Smiths. The normal drive to accomplish task has a dark counterpart. People driven to overachieve are motivated by an unhealthy co- uh, compulsion to show they are worthy. Overachievers have an underlying fear of failure or, or a self-worth contingent upon competence. Rather than setting and striving for goals based on a pure desire to achieve, their underlying motivation impels them out in the world to avoid failure. So God has given us an idea or a way of pure ambition. There's selfish ambition, which in the fruits, uh, that is the fruits of the flesh in Galatians 5, is called selfish ambition. Godly ambition is something we all need to have. But selfish ambition, even some of our elders have fallen away because they had selfish ambition. They wanted to be in charge of a region, or they wanted to be the pastor of the church. And since they weren't chosen, well, I'm out of here. It was selfishness. That kind of selfishness, of course, God does not approve of. That's human nature, and that's one of the fruits of the flesh. Just to give you a perspective on achievement, there are three basic ways to go after an objective, according to this article. Approach mastery goals are pure, focused on self-improvement for its own sake and predictive of learning and deep processing. I'll memorize spelling B words because it'll be fun to know what guidon means. Performance approach goals are more complicated, focused on competition. I want to win the spelling bee to show that bespeckled dweeb I'm a genius. So it's a wrong motivation. What are your motivations for achieving? I want to show that I'm superior than someone else. And then there are performance avoidance goals, competitive performance approach or fearful performance avoidance goals. Um, I want to be better than others to avoid rejection. So there are wrong motivations to achieve. But that's why we need to achieve godly truth, godly success, and that's brought out on the, the article on achieving godly success. I had hoped to get uh, several uh, handouts here, but we don't have them available today. Perhaps we can have them available uh, next week. Let's turn to 1 John 2, verse 15, and again we see that the world's goals are wrong. Their ambitions are self-centered. 
And we have to understand and admit that we also have human nature and that we have to monitor that nature and make sure that we are conscious of any of the old man that comes up. The old man is talked about in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4. We have to put down the old man and encourage the new man that came up from the waters of baptism with the, God, with, with the laying on of hands of God's Spirit. Here in 1 John 2, again, verse 15, Love not the world or the things in the world. If any man, anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And if you're in the world and you're not seeking God, you're just going to go along with the crowd. You're going to absorb the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And that's going to be your motivation for a worldly success, which is vanity. It's not lasting. And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Worldly values are false values. Those goals produce vanity, suffering, and death. But we're told to seek first the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Anyway, we heard even in the special music, this new heavens and the new earth gives us a a vision of what God has in store for us as we inherit the earth and we inherit the universe. And we look forward to that. We know over the years that a kingdom is not set up in our hearts as some misinterpret the Scriptures. They say, oh, the kingdom is in you. You know, the kingdom of heaven is in your heart. Well, Jesus was talking carnal-minded, rebellious Pharisees. It was not in their hearts. He was the ambassador of the kingdom among them. And that's why he said what he said. He was the king, the ambassador of the kingdom among them. The kingdom was not in their hearts. A kingdom has four basic elements. A king, territory, subjects, and laws. And the kingdom of God initially will have, that is, the king of kings and those who are in the kingdom as kings and priests, those of us who are training now to be kings and priests. So you have the government, the kingdom. You have a territory, which will be planet Earth. You have subjects, which will be human beings ruled by spirit beings. The kingdom, the royal family of God, the kings and priests that are immortalized, glorified children of God. And then you have laws, the commandments of God, the statutes of God, the judgments of God. That constitutes the kingdom of God. John R. W. Stott is a commentator, and he uh, surprisingly, in his comments on on the Sermon on the Mount, actually diverges from the mainstream Protestants to say, yeah, uh, the law is done away. Uh, he comments uh, that, of course, the law is not done away. It's fulfilled. I'll just read one comment from it before I get on to the other, uh, where he says uh, here on page 70 of his commentary, The Message of the Sermon on the Mount by John R. W. Stott. He states, People are still asking today, though in different ways, about the relation between Jesus and Moses, the New Testament and the Old. Since Jesus grasped the nettle and declared himself plainly on the issue, We should not be shy of following suit. He had come, notice in passing his awareness that he had come into the world on a mission, 
neither to abolish the law and the prophets, neither setting them aside or abrogating them, nor even just to endorse them in a dead and literal, literal, literalistic way. Thomas Tattertook taught time, Thomas Tattertook took, taught twine to tie ten twigs to two tall trees. Uh, that's one of the spokesman club tongue twisters. So, literalistic way, but to fulfill them. So he realizes that God's way of life is one that is giving and that is fulfilling the law, not doing away with it. So his comment then on Matthew 6.33 on page 160, uh, he states the following, We shall not be anxious about the one that is seeking the physical needs, for we have re- rejected it, but concentrate our mind and energy on the other, for we have chosen him. We shall refuse to become engrossed in our own concerns, but instead seek first the concerns of God. And he goes on to say that uh, once again our Lord simplifies the issue for us by re- reducing the alternative possible life goals to only two. He puts them over against each other in this section, urging his followers not to be preoccupied with their own security, food, drink, and clothing, for that is the obsession of, quote, the Gentiles, end of quote, who do not know him, but rather with God's rule and God's righteousness and with their spread and triumph in the world. So again, we have to ask ourselves, what is our goal in life? We need to visualize the kingdom and know what the kingdom is to see it. The kingdom of God is the government of God. And in the future consists of Christ, of course, as King of kings and Lord of lords, and those who are born into the kingdom as kings and priests. It's a royal kingdom, and it's a family. But our commitment is daily. We have to commit to that goal that God has given us. It's our life's great goal to be a part of the eternal, royal, ruling family of God. And we must visualize the future that God gives us and plans to give us. And we did that, of course, at the Feast of Tabernacles and had a great vision. So how do we seek the kingdom? I want to give you four different ways of seeking the kingdom. And, of course, there are others that you may think of. But number one in seeking the kingdom is always be conscious of the two great commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what we need to do is evaluate our goals, actions, and ideas and ask, will this goal fulfill either of the great commandments? I'll just reference Mark 12, verses 30 and 31 for the two great commandments. You can check on that uh, on your own time. But Dr. Meredith has preached on the first great commandment, that's sermon number 649. And some have criticized us for preaching too much about Christ and grace. But if you just open your Bible to anywhere in the New Testament, you'll find it difficult not to find the name of our Savior in the New Testament. The name Jesus occurs 972 times in the New Testament. The word Christ occurs 540, 554 times in the New Testament, and the word Lord occurs 665 times in the New Testament. 
So frankly, those who diminish the name of the Savior are in danger of their salvation. Are they obeying the third commandment? Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the eternal your God in vain, for the eternal will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. Do we preach too much about Christ and grace? Actually, of the more than 630 sermons that we've recorded, we've only one sermon uh, with grace in the title. And uh, I intend to give another sermon on grace, unless Dr. Meredith wants to, uh, sometime in the future. And we have 37 uh, sermons with the name Christ in the title. Others have uh, Christian or Christianity in the title. You know, I was just opening the Bible the other day, and I was reading uh, Galatians. It just popped out at me, uh, reading Galatians, the first chapter. In the first 15 verses, the word Christ appears six times, and the word grace occurs three times. And I would just open the Bible to Ephesians 1. I just start reading. And in the first 17 verses, the word Christ or Jesus occurs ten times, and the word grace occurs two times. How can you avoid it? The problem is, and I think and we hope that those who have that particular problem understand the difference, that our former association was preaching a false Jesus. And we've tried to educate the world and our congregations on the Christ of the Bible, the true Jesus of the Bible. And anyone who denies him and denies his or her own salvation, as Jesus said, he that is ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of him before my Father in heaven. Each of us needs that close, intimate relationship with our Father in heaven with our great high priest and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as Dr. Meredith has explained in sermons before, here are the apostles who wrestled with Jesus, who walked with him, who ate and drank and slept and had close fellowship with Jesus for all those three and a half years or perhaps less in their training. And they knew him and they loved him and they worshipped him. And so must we because we're going to marry him when he comes. So when I look at those references to Jesus and grace in the Scriptures, would those who criticize us also criticize the Apostle Paul for writing too much about Christ and grace? We just mailed out this past week the January-February Living Church News, and just an excellent uh, publication has all the reports and photos, color photos of Feast 2001, Rejoicing Before the Lord, The Two Trees, Do Not Limit God by Dr. Jeffrey Fall, and Dr. Meredith's editorial, Go Deeper in Conversion and Faith, and the letter to the brethren, Which Armstrong do you follow? And he quotes from a letter by Mr. Herbert Armstrong, December 12, 1958, in which Mr. Armstrong wrote, We do not seem to stress sufficiently Christ as Savior, faith in Him, and then His faith in us, living faith which is inseparable from obedience. We must stress the whole truth more, repentance, surrender, Christ as Savior, being changed by God's Spirit as God's gifts, by grace, 
following our conforming to his conditions of repentance and faith in Christ. The change from carnality to spirituality or spiritual mindedness, being begotten, and then the overcoming and enduring and growing life in obedience and living faith, with Christ living his life in us. Let's not leave Christ and grace out of our speech and letters. So we will not do that. I look forward to marrying Christ. We all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, as Paul wrote in a couple of instances. By the way, the word grace occurs 259 times in the New Testament. I hope that's not too many times for the critics. But frankly, we need that intimate relationship with our Savior. He is our living, loving Savior, and Christ wants to have an intimate relationship with us. Let's look at that relationship in Luke, the 8th chapter. Luke 8. Very heartwarming and, and loving to see how the real Jesus of the Bible wants to have a relationship with us. Luke 8, and starting with verse 19. Luke 8, and uh, verse... 19. Then his mother and brothers came to him and could not approach him because of the crowd. These were his physical mother and brothers. Verse 20, Luke 8. And it was told him by some who said, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. He even talked about a woman in the church having a relationship symbolically of being his mother. These are my mothers and my sisters and my brothers. Those who seek the will of God, hear the word of God, and do it. Well, that's the kind of relationship we want. Let's turn back to Isaiah 55, again, one of the memorization scriptures that we are seeking God's kingdom first. And one of the ways is to ask the question, are we keeping the first and second great commandments to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbors as ourselves? Isaiah 55, verse 6 and 7. Seek the eternal while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. There's coming a time, a cutoff time, Basically, when he will not be available, let the wicked forsake his way, practices that are sinful, addictive, common, routine for others, get, quit sinning, in other words. And the unrighteous man, his thoughts, just thinking evil things all the time, wrong thoughts, blasphemous thoughts, carnal thoughts. You replace those thoughts with godly thoughts, with the pure word of God, as it says in Philippians 4.8, No, whatsoever things are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, of a good report, if there be any virtue, if there are any praise, think or meditate on these things, as it says in the New King James. Let him return to the eternal, that he will have mercy on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. As we heard in Mr. Ruddleson's opening prayer, that there are those who are lost sheep, and we're praying that they're coming back, and many are coming back. 
after 30, 40 years, even talking with someone recently who uh, had been away for 25 years, now coming back into the church. So God still has the door open while there is time. Seek the eternal while he may be found. So one way of seeking God's kingdom above all else is, number one, always be conscious of the two great commandments. Number two in how to seek God's kingdom is to determine your priorities in life. We already read 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things that are in the world because that's the priority for carnal human beings, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. But let me give you a little test. What was the first thing, what is the first thing you do routinely in the morning when you get up? Do you kiss your wife or your husband? Do you get a cup of coffee? Do you provide for your physical necessities? You know, when I was younger and more healthy, I would roll out of bed on my knees, I was awake and alert, and I would pray for half an hour on my knees and then start doing the physical necessities. That was a priority for me. And other times, I would just get out of bed, pray for a few minutes, get on my exercise clothes, go ahead and run my 1.5 miles, and then come back and pray a half an hour on my knees um, before showering and dressing for work. But prayer has always been a priority for me. Is it a priority for you? Is it very important in your very thinking, in your very way of living? What are your priorities? For many, the first half hour may be texting or iPhone, email, Facebook, Twitter. Well, maybe that's not wrong, but if you're replacing prayer with that, Half an hour of that with, I guess the question is, do you, after you do your Twitter and Facebook, do you get down on your knees and pray? Perhaps for half an hour, as Dr. Meredith has encouraged us over the years, at least. So what is the most important priority in your life? After networking with your friends, do you network with God? Or is God second in your life? Or does God even appear on your spiritual network screen? We all know technology can be a benefit to all of us, but do we control the technology or does it control us? We know that quite a few people and young people, not only young but others, are addicted to a particular habit, a game or technology or vice. And this is from the New York Times, January 20th, 2010. The average young American now spends practically every waking minute, except for the time in school, using a smartphone, computer, television, or other electronic device, according to a new study from the Kaiser Family Foundation. Those ages 8 to 18 spend more than seven and a half hours a day with such devices compared with less than six and a half hours five years ago when the study was last conducted. And that does not count the hour and a half that youths spend texting or the half hour they talk on their cell phones. And because so many of them are multitasking, say surfing the Internet while listening to music, 
They pack an average of nearly 11 hours of media content into that seven and a half hours. While most of the young people in the study got good grades, 47% of the heaviest media users, those who consumed at least 16 hours a day, had mostly C's or lower, compared with 23% of those who typically consume media only three hours a day or less. So again, we need to stop and smell the roses. We need to examine ourselves. What, what is our priority? How are we using our time? Are we using our time to honor God? Let's turn to Romans, the 12th chapter. Romans, the 12th chapter. So the second method of or strategy in seeking God's kingdom is determine your priorities in life. Romans, the 12th chapter. I beseech you there, brethren, Romans 12, verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. That means 24-7. Holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable or intelligent service, or rational service. And do not be conformed to this world. It's so easy. And we realize that in this end time that as we take a look at a segment of society, that that same kind of characteristic is going to transfer in part into the church congregations. Not that it's fully, and it should not be fully that way, but we can expect that those characteristics are going to influence our congregations in the end time. But he tells us, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove that what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's our pursuit. We want to always realize we want the mind of God. We want the mind of Christ. We want to think God's thoughts. Again, what are your priorities in life? The Living Church News, July, August 2011, we had an article by Richard H. Sedliacek, who died this past year, titled, Our Christian Priorities. Now, if you were to list the four major priorities in life, what would they be? What would be number one? What would be number two, number three, and number four, your priorities in life? Mr. Sedliacek listed them this way. Number one, put God first. Number two, put family second. Number three, work diligently. Number four, serve the spiritual family. In his conclusion, Mr. Sedliacek writes in our Christian priorities, quote, we have seen that the four imperatives, the four priorities in order are, one, God, two, family, three, work, four, church. If we keep these priorities in balance, not neglecting any of them and not putting them in the wrong order, we can look forward to the time when we will find ourselves standing before Jesus Christ as spirit beings, glistening in glory as he returns to earth to bring world peace, happiness, and prosperity to all mankind. So what are your priorities? How are you using your time? Ephesians, the fifth chapter. Ephesians 5, we've had sermons again on redeeming the time, but it's a very important principle in terms of seeking God's kingdom first and how we seek God's kingdom because we have to evaluate our priorities. Ephesians 5, verse 15. 
See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. You know, as you read the book of Proverbs, you learn wisdom. And as several of us do here at headquarters, you've heard, I think, Dr. Meredith even mentioned it, uh, that some of us read one chapter of Proverbs every day. Uh, today is the 3rd of December, so we would read chapter 3 of Proverbs. I haven't read it yet. I've read chapter 1 and chapter 2. Uh, I'll have to read chapter 3 tonight of uh, Proverbs to keep up with it. But Jesus said, you are clean by the words that I have spoken unto you. As I commented to one television interviewer years ago at Lake of the Ozarks, who was when I was festival coordinator there, and I expected him to ask the question on all about our festival attendees at the Lake of the Ozark, how many and where, but they didn't ask that question. He said, what do you think is the spiritual condition of the United States? It was a rather shocking question all of a sudden. I said, as long as we were a Bible-reading nation, we were a moral nation, thinking in terms, of course, of what Christ said in John 15. You know, you were clean through the word that I've spoken to you, but our nation is no longer reading the Bible as much, and we are going down into immorality, not morality. And even carnal people, to a certain degree, who read the Bible can have a certain degree of morality to the degree, of course, they practice some of the principles in the Bible. So he says here in verse 15 of Ephesians 5, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. And of course, we need to redeem the time. I believe we had a sermonette here one time that talked about the 86,400. What is 86,400? Well, this is a book I just uh, received. It's called 86,400. Manage Your Purpose to Make Every Second of Each Day Count by Lavelle Levette. And in the overleaf states, there are 86,400 seconds in every day. That means every day is rich with 86,400 opportunities to fulfill your God-given purpose. And then uh, here on page 12, managing, that is uh, small Roman numeral 12, managing your purpose involves exercising control of your actions to carry out a plan to achieve an anticipated outcome or desired effect. Purpose management is a continuing cycle that engages you in activities that are relevant to the fulfillment of your purpose. We all have 86,400 seconds each day. So how are we using those? Again, we are not perfect. We don't have the human nature. We sin, and we realize that we aren't perfect in our attitude and our thoughts and our behavior continually. But that's what we're committed to. We're committed to redeem the time because the days are evil, and we have to set those priorities. Number one was concerning, was consciously remembering the two great commandments and how to seek God's kingdom first. And secondly is to determine your, prior, determine your priorities in life. And not just theoretically, but are they really internalized? Is it a part of who you are? Is seeking God's kingdom really 
your committed goal in life. Thirdly, in seeking God's kingdom, we need to practice the strategies for spiritual growth. And we had sermons on that all the time, but you know the four major strategies for spiritual growth, prayer, Bible study, fasting, and meditation. So let me again give you a simple test of your priorities. I won't ask you to raise your hands. But how many of you, since the Sabbath began at sunset last night, uh, more than or about 21 hours ago, how many of you have read your Bible for at least one minute? How many of you, since sunset last night, have even kneeled down and prayed for at least a minute? Now, Again, I, mean, I, I pray and hope that most of us have done more of that, and those who are blind have been able to use audio books or have someone read the Bible to them. But it is a test. It shows you where are your priorities. Is it really something important to you that you read the Bible every day? Is it important to you to be on your knees every day? Well, you might just turn back here. Ephesians, the uh, third chapter, verse 14, the Apostle Paul writes, Ephesians 3:14. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. And, of course, even Paul wrote in another place that every knee shall bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. And so if you, it's fine to pray all the time. And I pray in bed, I pray walking, I pray in my office, pray sitting down. But there are times to pray on your knees because that's the biblical instruction. Now, again, those who have arthritis and other pains, we understand that. God's still going to hear your prayer. Those who are nursing mothers and who are busy taking care of their children almost 24-7, You don't have to use resourcefulness. They need to pray while they're nursing and they're sitting down. So we understand that. But God gives us those priorities. We need those spiritual strategies and apply them particularly. And, of course, how important is Bible reading or Bible study to you? We have, of course, the Bible study course. This is lesson 21 through 24, we finally completed the four-in-one. We used to have 24 individual lessons, but now we've combined four lessons into one. Now we've uh, combined the last four, lesson 21 through 24. Lesson 21 is understanding the original Christianity. Uh, Dr. Meredith just taped a program restoring original Christianity, which is the change name now, the title change in our new booklet uh, that will be offered uh, restoring original Christianity. Mr. John O'Gwyn did an excellent job, of course, in writing the uh, Bible study course, all 24 lessons. Tools for Spiritual Growth, on page 23. He writes, How can we exhibit more of the fruits of God's Holy Spirit in our lives? God is just as willing to grant spiritual growth in our lives as He was in the lives of the men and women of faith mentioned in Hebrews 11. The key is that we must utilize the same tools for spiritual growth used by men like David, Daniel, and Paul. What did they do? They prayed and talked to God regularly. They fasted to draw closer to God and to humble themselves under God's mighty hand. 
They fed on the principles of God's Word by studying Scripture, and they deeply, and then deeply thinking and meditating on how to apply its principles in everyday life. So again, I hope many of you have taken the Bible study course, and if you haven't, that you will. Some of you have taken it online, and we still have the hard copies available. Let's turn to Daniel, the ninth chapter. Again, you know this classic example of prayer. He was confessing his sins. I think even we heard it in a recent uh, sermon uh, by Dr. Meredith. But how important when you realize these examples of the great men of the Bible. Verse 3 of Daniel 9, Then I set my face toward the Lord God, and these are small caps, so it's Lord God, to make request by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth and ashes. Now, we don't use sackcloth and ashes today, but we do by prayer, supplications, and fasting. And he prayed to the eternal my, and I prayed to the eternal my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. In the day of fast that we have scheduled for December 17th, that I hope we will examine ourselves and realize, have I sinned? Am I setting the wrong priorities in my life? Am I not really zealously seeking the kingdom of God and the spiritual treasures we heard about in the sermonette? So how much time then have you spent in prayer? Again, we don't want stopwatch religion. It comes from the heart. But do you spend more time, I think we spend more time eating than we do reading the Bible and praying. But you can at least draw the analogy and say, well, how important is my relationship to God? And, of course, Daniel in Daniel 6, verses 10, prayed three times a day on his knees, even though the writing was signed. He went home, and in his upper room With his windows toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. And because he did that, he was thrown into the lion's den. Would you still have the courage to pray three times a day on your knees, even if you were threatened by being thrown to the lion's? And then, of course, I won't turn there, Psalm 55:17, where David said, Evening, morning, at noon, will I cry aloud to you three times a day. Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16. Well, I realize, hmm, I actually have got another hour to go, but I'll, I'll try to... As my wife said, I try to cram too much into my sermon, so that's why we'll have a second sermon <clears throat> Later on, First uh, Thessalonians five, uh, verse sixteen: Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. In other words, we need to be in an attitude of prayer. You say, "Well, I can't pray because I'm not close enough to God." Well, as I've told you before, you know, when I was driving in a car and my friend was looking at me rather than looking ahead and didn't see the car stopped in front of him, and I, you know, I prayed, "Help." So there are times when you can pray very quickly and very immediately at times of emergency. You don't need to spend a long time warming up and asking for God's help. 
Pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophesying. prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast that which is good. And then I won't turn there, but Romans 12, 12, it says, Continuing steadfastly in prayer, or the King James Version, continuing instant in prayer. So it should be a part of our very relationship with God. You know, our national leaders in the past sometime had that acknowledgement and priority of God. They were seeking God's kingdom, at least they realized that the U.S. government couldn't learn or the establishment of a new nation could not prosper unless they acknowledged God. And you probably have heard that particular statement by Benjamin Franklin. It was a motion for prayers in the Constitutional Convention in 1787. And he said, I have lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? So thankfully, we've had leaders in the past who recognize and acknowledge that the only way a nation can prosper and succeed is by the acknowledgement of its creator. So are you praying every day from the heart? Are you reading your Bible every day? And, of course, I mark my Bible because it's, it's an organic connection. Now, some of you work with your computers. That's fine. But I would, even those who are technocrats, I would encourage you to get a real physical Bible and open it in market. There's a, an organic, inspirational connection when you do that and you actually mark your Bible and highlight it. And the words jump off the, off the page and have an impact and an influence and effect on you. So number three, practice strategies for spiritual growth. Number four, in seeking God's kingdom is to listen to the shepherd's voice. Let's turn to John, the 10th chapter. Actually, I may give a sermon on that in the future, but if Mr. Meredith wants to give that one too, that's okay too. John 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Are you one of the sheep? Are you a Follower of Jesus, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Are you following him? And I give them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So he says, my sheep hear my voice. Well, how do you hear his voice? Well, through the Bible, the Scriptures, the written Word of God, and if you prove where Christ is working, then you will diligently read what Christ's leaders are writing. You'll carefully listen to what they're teaching, preaching, and instructing. One habit I've had through the years was to first read the editor's comments, whether it's back in worldwide years ago with Mr. Herbert Armstrong was writing in the Good News of the Plain Truth magazine. That was the first thing I read. What is the leader writing? What is he teaching us? What is Christ leading him to instruct us? Now today, to read first of all in the Living Church News, 
Which Armstrong do you follow? The first page, the letter that you, this was mailed out this week, so you should be receiving the January, February 2012 Living Church News here in a week or two. That's the first thing I would read. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Are you a good listener? Are you focused on what is being said or what is being written? Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 13:9, for example, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And that expression, let him hear, occurs 48 times in the New Testament. Are you a good listener? Do you listen to the sermons and take good notes, or at least mentally take good notes? Do you read the coworker letters and respond to them? We heard in the sermonette about sending in a dollar. Do you respond to the coworker letter and maybe even send in a dollar? Because you are responding to that letter. Are you reading the Living Church News and the Tomorrow's World magazine? Are you watching Tomorrow's World telecasts? So as you hear the shepherd's voice, you'll be more alert to his mission and his commission to all of us. We'll pray more for God's work because we have our hearts in God's work. So how do you seek the kingdom of God? Listen to the shepherd's voice. I've given you four ways of doing that, and that is to seek the kingdom by always being conscious, number one, of the two great commandments. Number two, determine your priorities in life. Number three, practice spiritual strategies. And number four, listen to the shepherd's voice. We also, of course, need to renew our commitment, which is what we do year to year. And the next major festival will be the Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread. And we, of course, traditionally examine ourselves. We can examine ourselves even today. What is my spiritual condition? Do I feel close to God or do I feel distant from God? God says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you in James, the fourth chapter. And so we have to have that spiritual initiative. If we feel distant from God, we have to go after him. We have to seek him. We have to get on our knees and cry out to him. We have to ask ourselves, have I grown and matured spiritually? And if I have, in what ways? In what ways have I overcome human nature, the ways of the world, and Satan? We made a commitment first at baptism, and we've reviewed this from time to time, but let's just take a quick look at Luke 14, the counting the cost section. When we counsel people for baptism, we cover this commitment. Are you really committing yourself for the rest of your life to love Christ more than you love father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, and your own life also? Luke 14, verse 26. Unless you make that commitment, Jesus says, you cannot be my disciples. Verse 27, whoever does not Bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. As we heard in the opening prayer, we do have trials, we do have challenges. We all have different crosses to bear. Some people have one leg, some people have one lung. And that's their cross. And others have disruptive family relations, and that's their cross. And yet Jesus said, you still must come after me. 
regardless of the trials and tests you face. And, of course, that's the solution as well, to be able to find deliverance and to be able to have peace of mind in times of turmoil. Then he goes on to say, which of you intending to build a tower? Verse 28, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether has he enough to finish it. And so at baptism we say, are you willing to give your life? Have you already given your life, surrendered your life to God and to Christ? He owns you. Know you not that you are not your own, but you are purchased by the blood of Christ? Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 and 20, paraphrase. Christ shed his blood, he owns us. The word Lord in the Greek is kurios, which means boss or owner. He owns us, but he loves us. And he wants us to make sure that we renew our commitment, we strengthen our commitment, we confirm that commitment. And, of course, one of the ways of doing that is by claiming God's promise. Turn to Second Peter 1 and verse 2. Because it's a two-way street. In other words, we make a commitment, but God has given us incredible gifts and promises to keep that commitment and to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Mr. Bob Lee gave a sermon on the promises of God, sermon number 605. I mentioned these in a telecast on overcoming stress, that you can overcome stress if you think about the awesome and wonderful promises God has given us. Second Peter 1, verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied to you, no, not too much grace. Well, no, this says limit the, limit the amount of grace. No, it says grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us by glory and virtue. We have knowledge of him because he's revealed himself to us. We've sought him. We've found him. And we cultivate an intimate relationship with him, by which have been given to us, verse 4, exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the, in the world through lust. As I mentioned in the telecast, that just summarizing some of the promises of God has given us, and perhaps Mr. Lee mentioned those in his sermon recently. God has promised to answer our prayers. Matthew 7, verse 7. He's promised to fulfill all our needs. Philippians 4, verse 19. He's promised to guide our lives. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. He's promised us long life if we honor our father and mother. Ephesians 6, verses 2 and 3. He's promised to give us not only our needs, but the desires of our heart if we delight in him. One of my favorite promises, Psalm 37, verses 4 and 5. He's promised to give us peace of mind if we apply his instruction in Philippians 6, 4, verses 6 and 7. 
Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. He's promised us the ability to endure trials, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He's promised us the gift of the Holy Spirit, Luke 11:13 and Acts 2:38. He's promised us the gift of his love, Romans 5:5, 5, 5, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the spirit which is given unto us. That is a precious, awesome gift, the very spiritual love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that's given to us. Make sure you are practicing unconditional love, the love of God. And he's promised us eternal life, 1 John 2, verse 25. So ask God to fulfill these promises in your life and have that commitment to seek first the kingdom of God above all else. Let's turn to Luke, the 13th chapter. Luke 13, I'm only going to go over by about 45 minutes. Luke, the 13th chapter. No, I'll try to... Make it short. Luke 13 and verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow gate. No, that's an instruction. We must put forth effort. There are times when God tells us, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, as he did to the Israelites before the Red Sea. But then he said, go forward. What are you standing there for? I've opened the Red Sea. Now go forward. So there are times to stand still. There are times to go forward. He says, strive, in one of the margins, and I think the uh, parallel account says, strive as in agony to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will strive to enter in and will not be able. And the door is going to be shut sometime. So we need that sense of urgency. We need to renew our commitment, confirm our commitment, and strengthen our commitment to seek first God's kingdom and your relationship to the king of that kingdom. Turn to 1 Corinthians, the ninth chapter. The great explorers that we mentioned at the beginning of the sermon had a great goal. They had passion, and they had purpose. They applied many of the laws of success to achieve their goal. Their life goal was mainly physical, but God has given us a magnificent and glorious spiritual goal. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24, the Apostle Paul writes, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. How should we seek the kingdom? Always be conscious of the two great commandments. Determine your priorities in life. Practice spiritual strategies. Listen to the shepherd's voice. And while you have time, seek the Lord while he may be found. Because there is a famine of the word coming, as it mentions in Amos 8 and verse 11. In Matthew 25, the parable of the ten virgins gives us a warning to have a sense of urgency. And he says in Matthew 25:13, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. So pray for the kingdom to come. Dr. Meredith's first cover article in the 
May 1999, Tomorrow's World magazine, our first Tomorrow's World magazine, was titled, Seven Reasons Why Christ Must Come. And when you're praying for God's kingdom, why must God's kingdom come? He wrote those seven reasons. Man's capacity for cosmocide, unprecedented drought and famine, horrifying disease epidemics, massive earthquakes, hurricanes, and weather upheavals, escalating sorrow and terror. Man's last hope for peace has failed, and Jesus has promised to return. So pray for the kingdom to come. Let's reevaluate ourselves What are your priorities? Are they theoretical? Are you actually practicing God's laws of success? You fix the right goal. You're educating yourself. You're striving to take care of your health, the temple of God's Holy Spirit. You're exercising drive and resourcefulness, and you're trusting in God's guidance. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not in your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. That's Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. So, brethren, if you are living a life of loving God and loving your neighbor, if you're living a life of overcoming, a life of growing in godliness and holiness, if you're praying from the heart every day, if you're reading God's Word for daily guidance and faithful living, then God will bring you into His glorious kingdom. Because he's promised in Philippians 1.6 that he that has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So brethren, rejoice in God's plan and purpose for you. Go forward in faith, enthusiasm, and dedication and commitment. Seek first with all your heart the glorious coming kingdom of God and his wonderful righteousness. Dedicate yourself to strive and fulfill the great commission that God has given us in the church. If you do those things, all of God's blessings will be added unto you.